0: Justice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied to a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly, affects all indirectly. That's Martin Luther King, Jr.
1: Very nice. Welcome, everybody. Uh, I just can't believe so many people uh, made it out today, and so I'm glad to see all of you and uh, all of you listening to the podcast uh, when you do, and live streaming, uh, you know there's there's some kinks, you know. I'm not so far, but uh, for those of you at home, uh, thanks a lot. You know, if you're at all interested in volunteering to run the live stream, it's very easy and extremely gratifying. Is it? You, yeah you don't really get that much gratification out of so little effort in almost anything else wow so if you are interested uh let me know and uh Great. thanks for phyllis up there directing we're so glad to have ellen here on the organ and the piano that's fantastic yeah. thank you so very much and uh, J- Joan on the bass so yeah.
0: yeah, I just want to point out to everyone, if you uh, want to follow along, we don't have a program, but you can follow along. The order of service is in the House of Mercy hymnal.
1: Yeah, it's right there. Yeah, yep. mm-hmm. I don't know
0: exactly what page that is, but it's, in the uh, beginning. It's
1: B2, page okay. B2.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> hey, uh, a lot of people have been asking, uh, I know in these COVID times, a lot of things are being uh, canceled. What about condom this year? It's on, folks, I'm telling you, we're going to do it. Condal as you know, is the time right between, what, the solstice and the equinox.
0: Right, yep. Yeah,
1: so we're kind of halfway to Easter, and uh, it's a time when we come together and we have a liturgy, we light candles, and we bring that, the light of this community and the light of... I just want to say Christ, because it's just in my head that way. You can say
0: that. All right, I guess
1: so. The light of Christ home with you into your homes. And uh, yeah. So, but it's always always good. And there's prizes.
0: (laughs) This is the House of Mercy and welcome to it.
1: Oh, sorry, it's on February 2nd. Would you please join me in the prayer of invocation. God of mercy, draw us out of our near constant ambient self-awareness, that we might be fully present, free of the gaze of our own regard, where we neither negate nor inflate ourselves, but are entirely in this moment, buoyed by your mercy, held in your peace. Amen. May the peace of Christ be with you all. Let's all share a sign of peace with one another. Won't you please join me now in the prayers of community. I'll end each prayer with, Lord, in your mercy, and I invite you to respond. Hear our prayer. God of mercy, we pray, especially in this season of Epiphany, for some glimpses of the divine in the everyday. We do not need to see your face or behold your resurrected body. It will be enough to see the miraculous lived out by those who answer your call to the mercy, those who fulfill your commandment to love our neighbor and to make a peace bigger than the hate and increasing acrimony of the everyday. We Remember with gratitude the witness of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., who embodied that call. God, in your mercy. God of mercy, we pray in this time when our body's store of vitamin D has almost completely drained, when the dreariness and the bitter cold seems to come from within. Give us some light. Remind us of the warmth of your love that we can experience in community, in the arms and the company of each other. Remind us to share that warmth and light with those we encounter every day. God in your mercy. God of mercy, in a time when it seems that the next tragedy comes too quickly, we pray for those who have been our victims of violence and of hatred. We pray for our leaders, who will remind them to think of the least in the world as they negotiate in the halls of power. In a time where it seems like every part of our lives and our world is on the brink, fill us with gratitude as we fill our lungs with breath, that we are thankful for your creation. We're thankful that we really can have hope in your mercy. God, in your mercy. God God, of mercy, we pray for those who are in need of healing, physical, spiritual, Or emotional we pray for all those who are suffering with COVID those who are in fear of the possibilities we pray for those who are dying and those who have lost someone they love we pray for the prisoners and those who are prisoners of addiction We pray for those people who have to negotiate this time of isolation alone. We pray for those of us who suffer with mental illness. We are confident that you are a healer. You hear our prayers and desire to make us well. God in your mercy, God of mercy, we have not loved you with all that we are. And we have hurt the people in our lives, those who pass through our lives with things that we have done and things that we have left undone and unsaid. We ask for your forgiveness and are confident that you judge us with your grace. God, in your mercy, God of mercy, meet us now in this extended time of silence. Amen. The Gospel reading for today comes from the 2nd chapter of John, starting with verse 1, continuing through 11. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The word of the Lord.
0: Friend, who's like a fact wizard, like an answer master, I don't know, like a human Google. Ask him a question, or just even wonder Um. aloud about something in his presence, Do you remember that Dick Cheney shot someone in the face? He knows the date off the top of his tongue. He knows the names of all the Scandinavian crime series on Netflix, when the Sonny and Cher show was on TV, the speed of light. Whereas if you ask me how old I am, I'll have to pause and think. I have an amazing incapacity to retain numbers and dates. I can't answer anything quickly. I have to ponder almost everything. This could have something to do with why my friend is drawn more to science and I'm drawn to theology, where questions aren't expected to be answered readily. The life of faith is practically, by definition, more about questions than answers. The goal, if that's even a very good word for it, which it's probably not, the driving force is not actually the ongoing desire for answers as much as a longing for relationship, which is a very different sort of thing than answers. I mean, of course, I've heard the slogan, Jesus is the answer, and maybe Maybe Jesus somehow is the answer, but whatever that means, it's an entirely different sort of thing than 8 p.m. on Sundays in 1975 and 76 is when the Sonny and Share show came up. Faith is about trusting in a relationship between living things whose variables aren't fixed. Being engaged and re-engaged in a moving, living relationship to an infinitely creative God and ever-evolving other creatures and the planet, the universe, none of which are entirely knowable. I mean, isn't it crazy that we can't really even adequately understand or explain consciousness? Consciousness not even the greatest scientific minds on the planet and yet it's essential to how we experience reality, whatever that is, every moment of our lives. We know that our senses are some of the worst data-taking devices that exist. And dark matter, it apparently makes up 84% of the matter in the universe, 84% and yet no one really knows what it is. It's thought to be a powerful cosmic glue keeping whole galaxies from spinning apart, but we don't even have the capacity to detect it. Its existence is inferred, not observed, or known. So I guess what I'm saying is that it sort of seems to me that it's helpful to be at least comfortable with questions. And House of Mercy has kind of always been about the questions more than the answers. And I really like that. We're a community of people with a lot of questions. Lively, curious, sometimes unanswerable questions. Questions propel us. I mean, do you think that's accurate more than answers? It makes sense to me. That that would be the sort of territory of the church, though I know everyone wouldn't agree with that. But it makes sense to me that Jesus, longing to lead us into faith, into trusting, a trusting, loving relationship, to a living God that's not entirely knowable, that Jesus would ask a lot more questions than he answers. 307 to be precise. He's asked 183 questions of which he only answers three. For every question he answers, he asks literally 100. Engaging in relationship with other living, growing, changing, evolving people and things involves asking a lot of questions. I've noticed so much lately, Maybe it says I'm getting older, and I know a lot of old people. But how much people sort of assume that they know other people? Have them figured out or something? Like, like you can assume or predict or label like, oh, they go in that box. But I don't think that's a very helpful tendency if you want to be in relationship with people. I think it might be more helpful to their flourishing, their capacity for transformation, to be curious about them more than presumptive, to ask questions. I think asking questions might almost be like a quality of love and respect. Who are you? What do you need? So yeah, we've tried at House of Mercy to be very attuned to how crucial questions are. And yet, I've preached on this text a million times. Well. Maybe 13, I'm not that good with numbers. But a lot. And yet, I never really heard Jesus' question in this text. What concern is that to you and me? The family holding the wedding feast in the story runs out of wine. Jesus' mom takes note, tells Jesus they have no wine, and he asks, what does that have to do with us? I mean... I've read the question, of course. But I never thought of it as a real question. I heard it as more of an irritated statement to his mother, as if she was meddling in something she didn't belong in. So they're out of wine. It's not our problem. I wonder why I always heard it that way. So yeah, Jesus is at the wedding feast with his mom and his disciples. It was the community feast, not any sort of religious ceremony that was at the heart of an ancient wedding. It's all about the feast, which wasn't a simple or casual affair. A lot of rules and expectations and obligations were involved. Some invited guests actually were expected or obligated to send money before the wedding. And part of that money was used to pay for the feast. In return, the hosts were expected or obligated, really, to provide an excellent and fulfilling meal. Good food and wine weren't peripheral peripheral to marriage at all. So here they are. Jesus is standing by his mom, who's observant, probably keenly aware of what's going around her, not locked into some egoistic myopia. So she sees that the wine has run out. Seems like before there's any general alarm about that. And she grips her son's arm firmly, but without drawing attention, without even turning her head and whispering in his ear, she says quietly, just so he can hear her, they have no wine. It's almost like noticing that the groom's fly is down, or there's coagulated snot hanging from his nose hairs. No, it's way worse than that. Way worse than any sort of momentary embarrassment. It's a bad situation. Like, if the guests who sent money ahead of time didn't end up getting a satisfying meal, the family could actually be taken to court over that. It's not a frivolous little thing, worse than embarrassing. It was shameful, disastrous to run out of wine, a bad omen. What a shadow that would cast over the newlyweds' prospects for happiness. To say that it would ruin the day would be a total understatement. So Mary says, They have no wine. And Jesus asks, What concern is that to you and to me? And every time I've read that, honestly, I've thought, What a jerk. Like, he wasn't really asking, asking. he wasn't open to hearing how it had to do with them. He was trying to shut the woman down, her concerns down. It, It wasn't a real question, what does this have to do with us, but a statement. Meddling woman, it's none of our business. Why have I always thought that? Maybe because he calls her woman, not mom or Mary. So it seemed like he was distancing himself, being disrespectful. Even though I've read a lot of people who say that it has no disrespect. It's to say woman is like saying madame, madame. It's it's how you address a married woman instead of like a girl or your wife. It's a polite term of respect. But it changes the whole tenor of things if I actually trust that Jesus loved and respected his mother. And why would I ever think otherwise? Why wouldn't he be asking a real question of a woman he greatly loves and respects, like he's interested in what she has to say, instead of speaking down to her, like she doesn't know what she's talking about? Mary's probably middle-aged at this point, and it helps me to picture not that iconic, demure young woman wearing the blue dress, but more of a middle-aged Jewish mother, maybe from Queens, maybe with a whisker or two on her upper lip, laugh lines, crows feet, emblems of the wisdom that comes with age. If Jesus is fully human, then he doesn't come out of the womb with nothing to learn, right? I'll bet he learned a lot from his mom. He might not put the whole patriarchal nuclear family above every other kind of human relationship, But that doesn't mean he didn't need his mom. I've always felt so frustrated with Jesus here for seeming so flippant and rude to the woman who gave birth to him, who he couldn't really even exist without, given that he's human. But maybe he's not being disrespectful and demeaning. Why would I think he was? He says his time hasn't come, but that doesn't have to mean that he's telling his mom to shut up. Maybe he just isn't sure what to do. It changes a lot if you hear Jesus' question as real. But I don't think it's just me, actually, who hasn't heard it as real. Western readers are often sort of biased against questions, unlike the rabbis and the first interpreters of scripture who are all about the questions. Western readers have learned to read many questions in the text, in the Gospel of John, as propositions, more than real questions. As if God, the almighty, authoritarian, omniscient, the incarnate God, couldn't actually ask a real question, because if you know everything, you don't have to ask anything. But maybe when Jesus asked things like, What do you seek? Why are you weeping? Do you believe in me? Whom do you seek? Maybe he's not secretly mansplaining in some roundabout way that sounds like a question. Maybe he was actually interested in hearing what people had to say. Open to a multitude of answers. Because he really likes people. And values relationship and questions. Questions open up the possibility of dialogue. How? Different does this all look if Jesus is really seeking, wondering, asking rather than making pronouncements all the time? If he's actually asking his mom, how are we involved in the needs of these people? Does their deprivation, circumstances that might cause them shame, does that have something to do with me? Is a person living in poverty? or the immune-compromised man, woman, or child, the lonely old woman in the nursing home of concern to us? Does the chronic injustice visited upon the ancestors of the people white European colonists enslaved or tried to exterminate to enrich this country's ambitions for wealth from which most white people in this country continue to profit? Does that have to do with us? Should we be concerned that the wine has run out? There's wine imagery all over the Bible. Amos talks about the promise that the hills will flow with sweet wine, and Isaiah imagines the culmination of God's kingdom of love, the hope beyond time as we know it, as God making a feast of great food and good wine for all people like roasted chicken and homemade bread and fresh-baked pies. It sounds like a little more like the activity of a mother than an authoritarian dictator sitting on a throne omnipotently. If Jesus is really asking what the circumstances have to do with them, Mary doesn't exactly answer, but she sort of does. When she turns to the people in charge of serving the meal and says do whatever he tells you. It seems like her unspoken answer to Jesus asking what concern is that of ours is are you kidding me? What concern is the pain and shame and need of this people to us? If you can do something do it of course help them. The Reformation surely accomplished some good things, but when they burned and smashed and carried off statues of Mary because they thought the reverence given to her was inappropriate, I think they might have gone a little bit too far. I don't think it would be crazy to say that Mary, the one woman who has an absolutely indisputable place in the history of the Christian faith, as the conduit for the incarnate God to come to the world has been disrespected by men with authority, quite often. Maybe that's a little part of why I can't hear the question. Her womb is a place where Jesus was made human. He becomes visible in the world through her, her cells, the nutrition her placenta gives to him. It's not like the Catholic Church has always treated her perfectly, but it makes sense to me to look to her as a model for the Church, as the Catholic Church often has. A model for the community endeavoring to make God visible in the world. To see the intricate web of interconnected being. If someone is suffering, it has to do with you. If you see someone without wine, try to make sure they get some. It was through Mary's intercession, through her compassion for the host at the wedding, that Jesus is moved to work his first miracle. And that miracle or sign or magic that happens in this story, because, I don't know, there's something about it that seems a little bit like magic, something joyful and even a little bit funny about it. Mary trusts Jesus to recognize that the people need their help, that other people's pain have to do with them. But he doesn't then send his disciples to town to buy a case of wine. He tells the servers, look, pour water into these giant jars used for washing hands. And then he says, okay, now put a glass under the spout. Then fill the glass from that spout. And now take it to the sommelier to taste. I mean, I don't know, but I can imagine him waiting there sort of gleefully for the head waiter to taste it, and it's so shockingly delicious, better than anyone could have expected, and there's a bajillion gallons of it. Hey, Mom, look what I did. It's a little bit funny in its excessiveness. It is so over-the-top gracious. It's like, oh, wait, did I actually question if I should get involved in the needs of these people? I'm so sorry, but let me show you what I've learned, Mom. Are we caught in a distorted perception about the centrality of ourselves as independent, isolated entities apart from all others? As if other people's pain had nothing to do with us? Is that a delusion that humanity lives under? As if we could ever really be separate from our relationship to everything around us? There's no self apart from all that to know. We're brought into being by what is other than us. Not just at birth, but over time. Jesus asks, what has this to do with us? It seems like Mary's answer is like, are you kidding me? It's outlandish that we would ever question our utter connectedness. That we would ever break or avoid or deny this most basic reality in any way ever, but we constantly do. You can hardly overstate how important to the life and the mission of the church it is that we hear that question. What does it have to do with us? And if you see places where there's no wine, try to bring a little bit to the table.
1: been listening to the house of mercy podcast you can experience all this live every sunday at five check out www.houseofmercy.org for all the details house of mercy is a church in saint paul you should come it's not that bad